This is WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live online at www.wvew.org. You're listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. On the air every Sunday at noon. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can find us online at Facebook as Indigo Radio and on Instagram as well. Reminder, the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not of the radio station. I'm Becca. I'm a teacher in Springfield, Vermont, and I'm here today with Josh. I'm also a teacher in Springfield, Vermont. And today we're going to be airing parts of a Zoom talk that we had with Sheila Braun, who's a data scientist. This talk was hosted in January by the School Workers Action Committee. In part one, Sheila discusses the changing guidelines of the CDC and recent studies around children and COVID to help us determine how safe it is to actually be in schools. In part two, we'll hear Sheila respond to the experiences of teachers in Vermont and what she thinks we should do to keep everyone safe. And in the final part, Sheila addresses the narrative that kids are safer in school and helps us think about the ways we can reimagine learning and education. So thanks for tuning in today with Indigo Radio. Well, thank you everyone for being here with us tonight. We are the School Workers Action Committee and we're a group that came together last spring um, to try to build power for school workers, both unionized and non-unionized, and trying to build a more democratic workplace as well as shifting power so that we can serve the needs of all Vermonters. And we're here tonight because we're living through a pandemic and that is intensified because we are also li living under a system of capitalism that we know puts profit over people. And so it's really difficult to make sense of the science that we're told is the most important science in order to keep schools open and you know the language of it's for the economy. But what does that really mean? And what is the science that's actually driving decisions? And what should we know? You know, the big question always is, is it really safe to be in schools? And so we're here today with Sheila Braun. Thank you so much, Sheila, for joining us. Thank you for having me. She is a data scientist focusing on medicine and education. And so we're really lucky to have her here. She's gonna give about 10, 15 minutes of just a overview talking about whether schools are safe, what's some of the updated research about children and COVID and what can education look like during this pandemic and beyond? Well, thanks for coming, everybody. Um, please feel free to also ask questions verbally and interrupt at any point. I'm going to start with um, men by mentioning an article that just came out this morning uh, in the New York Times. And the title of the article is, Like a Hand Grasping, Trump Appointees Describe the Crushing of the CDC. So as a data scientist, I've been watching the CDC very carefully right from the beginning of the pandemic. And the minute something came out, I would grab it, download it, try to save a copy, especially after it became pretty clear that the CDC would release something and then it would get retracted. And then the, the CDC would release it again, only it would 
be edited. So for instance, the first time that I saw that happening was when the meat packers started to get sick in um, the Midwest and the CDC put out, um, usually their language is very strong. You know, they're a regulating agency. And so they make the rules. So you shall do this and you shall do that. So they, they created an article or a report for the meat packers uh, for some of the locations, which contained language that was that strong, shall this, shall that. And they were actually rules and um, they had teeth in them that meant that the meat packing uh, locations were not allowed to open up until they had met these criteria that were laid out by the CDC. Well, um, unfortunately, that, that draft was retracted and another draft was put out and that took all the teeth out of it and words like if possible and if, uh, um, well, mostly it's like at the end of a sentence that would say um, the factory shall put compartments up to keep people safe or shall provide personal protective equipment, then um, the com comma would follow and then the language would be if possible. So that was the first alert for me as a data scientist that there was something going on at the CDC. And um, this continued and there were other drafts of things where I would see the first draft and then the first draft would disappear within say 12 to 24 hours. And um, I would save it down to my hard drive because I wanted to make sure I got it. And then another draft would appear and that would be on their website from that time forward and the language would be significantly weakened. Now this is, this is uh, very upsetting when it comes to people's safety at work, which is what the problem was with the, the factories that were producing meat. Um, because it, I mean, there, there were, that, that, that didn't just affect the people at the factories, it affected entire communities. And obviously there have been huge outbreaks around these factories since then, but there were people who were able to change the CDC's message in order to meet a political, um, a political goal. So the question then for me was, what about for schools? So for instance, I'm looking at the CDC's website right now, and I'm looking at an article entitled COVID-19 trends among school-aged children. Um, and the, uh, this would be March 1st through September 19th, 2020. And the conclusion was that, um, that it's, that COVID doesn't spread as readily among young kids as it does among older people. Now, even this article says that from age like 11 on up, COVID is just as likely to spread as it is in adults. Um, so middle school, high school kids, they're just as likely to spread it as it, like if you go to the hardware store and spend 15 minutes talking to somebody, uh, you are as safe as a child who goes to a school and spends 15 minutes talking to somebody. So there's no real difference for kids uh, in middle and high school. The question then was about these younger kids and the uh, articles were kind of emphasizing the idea that kids under 10 years of old um, don't really transmit uh, SARS-CoV-2 in school settings. And I had to question that because I know, you know, all of us now know a little bit about how it's transmitted. It comes on droplets. If you have a juicy child with droplets and they have um, SARS-CoV-2 in their droplets, then does it somehow not communicate? Like if they sneeze, are those droplets somehow 
less contagious because they're coming from a child? And this doesn't make sense to me. Or is the is it that the children just don't catch it as much? Well, we all know that um, it's been pretty pretty often reported that we are finding fewer cases among children of those ages. And then the question becomes why? So just last week then the Lancet put out an article called The Role of Schools and School-Aged Children in SARS-CoV-2 Transmission. And in this article, they made it very clear that children up and up to, you know, from five to 11 say, are just as likely to catch um, COVID or call it, catch the virus. So the virus is SARS-CoV-2. Okay, that's why I'm using different language. That would be the virus itself. COVID-19 is the disease that comes from the virus. And from most of us already know that the, the number 19 doesn't come from you know a list of viruses, but from the year in which it was discovered. So COVID-19, the illness, and I'm gonna differentiate the virus, SARS-CoV-2, and say that if a child is carrying SARS-CoV-2 around and they're a little juicy, say if they've got a cold at the same time, another coronavirus that we already have had everywhere and this kid is just learning how to deal with it, their immune system is learning how to deal with it, so they have sneezes and so on. SARS-CoV-2 is not going to say, oh, I'm hanging around in a child from the age of five to 11, therefore I am not going to follow these droplets wherever they go, or when I land on a person, I'm not going to infect them. You know, the logic wasn't there. Um, it's pretty clear that if we're talking about the same virus, it doesn't matter whether it's coming from a child or from an adult. So there was, you know, a lot of skepticism around this, this conclusion that has been repeated over and over and over again, that for some reason, children are somehow safer to be around than adults are. And now this Lancet article has completely found very different, um, has found completely different conclusions to the other article, which, and I'll tell you why the two articles are different. One is that, Sheila, um, yes. Can I assume, is the Lancet, what's the Lancet? Is that a medical journal? Is that a- Yes, it is. The Lancet is a British medical journal of Thank infectious you. diseases. Now, I'm not gonna say the Lancet always gets it right. They've had some articles that they've had to retract, but the good thing about the Lancet is that when they think they've got it wrong, they do retract their articles. So, um, and they do, this is a peer reviewed article published on December 8th, 2020. Okay, so in Lancet, then um, they, they talk about the insulence of the prevalence, which is Prevalence is how often a disease occurs in the community. So you might have the prevalence of a certain type of cancer, breast cancer, say. Um, that's a number that we can fix on and we can know, like I can go and look that up if I need to do a calculation about, um, you know, like how likely am I to have breast cancer if a screening test came back positive. Um, the number is actually surprisingly low, but I can find that out by looking up the prevalence of, you know, how many people actually get breast cancer. The problem with prevalence of a thing like um, COVID-19 is that it's a moving target. So the prevalence of the disease depends upon the behavior of the people. So the prevalence in Vermont, for instance, is lower than the prevalence in New Hampshire by somewhat. It's significantly lower than the prevalence in New York and so on and so forth. So as you look at the New York Times data, which is good data, by the way, they do check it very carefully. Um, then you'll find that, 
that uh, Vermont is like this yellow island surrounded by other states. And we're all aware of that. But we're also all aware of the fact that Vermont cases are slowly increasing. So right now we have maybe, I think the last time I checked, there were four people in the ICU and, and there were uh, 23 people in the hospital. There were 66 new cases as of four o'clock this afternoon, which is, uh, um, and I don't know how much there will be by the end of the day. Um, so cases have been kind of hovering right around 100 per day, sometimes higher, sometimes lower, of new cases. And the research that I've seen shows that um, if you want to know how many people have COVID, and then you take the number of cases that we know about from the CDC, and you multiply that number by 13. Now that's an average. So in Vermont, you probably multiply it by less than 13. In New York City, you might multiply it by more than 13. But the point is that there is the incidence of COVID, how many people actually are sick with it. And then there's how many people we know are sick with it. And those are two separate numbers. And the number that's gonna bite you is the number of people who are actually sick with it. So you have to assume that since there are, are uh, 66 cases new today, then multiply that, say multiply that by 10, then there are actually 660 people who got sick or have SARS-CoV-2 in their system that we don't know about, all right? Now, I know that sounds really shocking and scary and possibly unbelievable. The, the thing, the reason that it is that way is that it is uh, that we don't have symptoms when we're, um, when we're able to communicate the disease to other people, a lot of people don't have symptoms until they've already passed it on. And that's why that number gets so high so fast. And then a certain number of those people will be asymptomatic. And a certain number of those people, uh, of the people who are asymptomatic or not asymptomatic are gonna, are gonna say, oh, well, it's just a headache. And so they may have a few symptoms, but not enough that would prompt them to go and get tested. All right, so this is, what's, this is what makes this such an insidious disease and why it's been so hard to control. Now, how safe are schools? And the answer to that question based on the Lancet article is that schools are no safer than the average workplace. So that is also for kids from five to 11. So if you work at a company where everybody's wearing masks and everybody is distancing and everybody is, uh, live, is spending time in rooms. And this is really important. This is the most important thing in rooms where the air is constantly being replaced. So the virus is getting sucked out of the room as soon as it's being exhaled from whoever's positive, then you are in a fairly good situation. You don't have a zero chance of catching the disease, but you have a lower chance of catching the disease. If you are a child and you're in school and the same things are true, people are wearing masks, you're outside a lot so that the, the virus is being sucked away by the passing breeze. Um, it's not getting to hang around in the room so other people can inhale it. People are staying away from each other. Then those kids are relatively safe. But if they're in a room without air purification or air replacement, replacement is better than purification. And, um, where like they tend to, the, they, they break down and they go to within three feet, which apparently we've been told in a lot of cases is okay, but it's not, um, then, then those kids are just as much at risk as an adult would be in that same situation. 
So um, the Lancet article, then the, the authors discussing like, how do we reconcile the fact that this one article found that there were fewer cases? Well, because the, the first article was using um, what's called passive surveillance. They were catching the people who came forward and said, my child is sick, could you please test them? And that's why the numbers are lower. With the second article, the Lancet article, did not use passive surveillance, but they actively went out and tried to get a random sample so that they could get more accurate numbers. And the other important factor was that the first study was done when kids were fewer kids were in schools, and so there were a lot of them were just staying home. And the, the second article has happened since schools opened. So um, that I hope um, kind of the short answer is how safe are kids in school? They are as safe as you would be if you were in the same setting, but there is no special way that children don't get COVID. Now, if they get COVID, how sick do they get? That is where the difference lies with children. For some reason, their immune systems seem to have like an extra uh, a way of interacting with the disease, so they have fewer symptoms. However, some of those asymptomatic children have been x-rayed, and they have been found to have changes to their lungs. So although they are asymptomatic, are the long-term effects um, not going to happen to them? Are their bodies completely unchanged? And here's where the big question mark comes in. We don't know if their bodies are unchanged. So it is not safe to get COVID. That's, you know, it, it, no person is safe if they get COVID. Um, we do not, and the reason for that is that we do not know what it does to us. We do know some, and we've been learning more, but we don't know the full story. And especially we don't know the full story when it comes to kids. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. My, 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 my music is so hard. Makes me say, oh my Lord, thank you for blessing me. Well, why do you rather do that? It's good. Well, you know you're down. I see the whole world from the old and I'm known as such. And that's just good. You can't touch this. I told you, homeboy. You can't touch this. Yeah, that's how we living and you know touch this. Look at my eyes, man. You can't touch this. Yo, let me bust the phone lyrics. Touch this. Fresh new kids and bands. You got it like that. Now you know you want to dance. So move out of your seat and get a fire girl and catch this beat while it's rolling. Hold on. Pump a little bit and let them know it's going on like that. Like that. Hold on a minute. Hold on back. Let them know that you're too much and this is a good. They can't touch. Yo, I told you. You can't touch this. This. Yo, sound the bell, school is in, sucker. You can't touch this. Give me a song, a rhythm, make them sweat. That's what I'm getting them now. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEW LP Brattleboro. We just heard part one of an interview with uh, Sheila Braun, a data scientist, talking about, like, is it really safe to be in school? But before we hear more about our thoughts from part one of the interview, Josh, I'm just wondering, especially as an elementary educator, 
do you feel like you're like have to be singing that song all the time in school? <laughs> I'm constantly finding myself telling the students, you can't touch this. And they're really good about it too, which is really helps right now dealing with a global pandemic in the form of COVID in schools where there's so much wiping down, there's so much precaution. So yeah, having students thinking about, oh, I can't touch this is really helpful too. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't believe that um, we're living through a time where the number one agency that we should be able to trust for its guidelines, the CDC, has was taken over by Trump, as many mm. people know. And that was clearly to control the messaging so that the, me the guidelines and the messaging were corrupted by the interest of business owners rather than working people. And what Sheila said, that changing the message to meet political goals mm. just has caused so much misunderstanding, almost chaos and distrust, where we really should be able to trust in a public health regiment from the government. You're right. And, and information comes out that you read and, and then it changes, right? And there's really no clarification from the CDC as to why, right? We can piece together why the reasoning, but it, like you said, it, it creates a lot of chaos and uncertainty for people. So it's kind of no wonder why it feels like there's so many ways to look at COVID uh, for people. I, I thought it was really important that uh, Sheila brought up the point that you're no safer though in a school setting than you are in any other setting that you take that same risk. I thought that was a really important point to stress out of this because we like to think that our institutions, whether they're public health institutions like the CDC or our schools are places we can trust and that we can be safe at because right, we all have a shared interest in it, think that it's for the public, but this data isn't showing it. That's kind of really scary, I think right now, especially as a teacher, but also just as a person living and existing right now Worrying about the spread of COVID is a serious thing. And schools seem to be a place where that could still happen, it sounds like, from this data. And I think we have a false sense of safety here in Vermont because we, because our numbers have been so low for so long. And we've also, most people have been diligently following protocols for nine months. And mm -hmm. so instead of saying, oh, this is working, let's keep doing it we're loosening up on the restrictions because it's been working. And now we're being hit for the first time. And there's kind of like no, no blinking of an eye. It's just like, we'll keep going with business as usual. So let's go to part two of the conversation with Sheila Braun. Let's do it. In Randolph where I teach, we've had two times where there have been cases confirmed in school. And I don't know all of the details numbers, but we've had like, between 10 and 20 people test positive between those two times. And after that, the school board decided to go remote. And then about two weeks later, under a lot of community pressure, um, reversed that decision and we're back to hybrid and they're sort of talking about accelerating the timeline for getting back to full-time in person. And at the meeting where that decision was made, several parents came forward who are also healthcare workers, nurses, a pediatrician, and 
a lot of the data that they were presenting as well as the school board was really focused on the relatively low um, community case rates in our town since that initial spike, which to me just seems like a really narrow way of looking at risk, given how much like people live in one town and teach in another or sending you know, right. a tech center. Um, so I, I was curious if, you, if there's anything you could speak to there. And then the other thing that they spoke a lot about was, which I think is extremely valid, is like the mental health impact on kids, you know, not having the in-person experience of school and felt like it was really weaponized um, to, to sort of mm-hmm. portray it as, as sort of like anti-student to, to want to stay remote for safety reasons. The voices we didn't hear, and I'm curious if there's any data here, is about the mental impact of kids being in school under these uncertain and scary conditions. And obviously, it's probably too early to say, but anyway, I'm just curious if either of those points are are things that you could speak to. Yeah, one of the areas that you study when you learn to be a statistician is uh, decision theory. I don't know if any of you have studied it. But decision theory is, you know, is is a, a very careful way of making a decision where there are costs and benefits on both sides. So one of the things you look at is the benefit of opening schools, and then you look at the detriment of opening schools. Then you look at the benefit of closing schools and the detriment of closing schools. So it's like there's four boxes. And the categories are mental health and so on. So there are plenty of kids whose mental health has improved by staying home. Um, I'm not, I don't mean to insult any teachers. (laughs) I raised two such children, but there are children who thrive if they don't go to school every day. And there are plenty of children who thrive if they do go to school every day. So I think that your term weaponizing um, this particular observation is really an interesting term. Um, And I would, I would kind of agree that the message is, is um, yeah, the message is, is being manipulated because um, on the face of it, there is no doubt whatsoever that it is safer if everybody stays home. It just is. You cannot argue that it is physically safer to go to school. It may be mentally safer. It may be economically safer. But the risk of going to school is real. And so when parents put out the pressure and they say, oh, but, you know, oh, but this, the fact is that cases in Vermont are climbing. They are climbing. And until that stops, then it's, it's safer for everybody to stay home. And if we could all stay home for six weeks, nobody go anywhere, and the state of Vermont or the federal government pay us all to stay home, um, all of us who can anyway, and then pay hazard pay to the people who have to bring us food um, and take volunteers for that sort of thing, you know, like that would eradicate the virus. And I, I wish we had done it right from the start, but this thing where we do, where we close because we perceive that things are not safe and then we open because we wish it was uh, and because there's just enough holes in the research that we can interpret the, the holes, we can fill in the blanks with the answers that we want to see, then that is what is making this such a long-term agonizing process. I, I feel like, I don't know if you have any more to say about like focusing on the case rates where these primarily come from versus looking more broadly at like yeah. the general, yeah, if you're, if you're trying to make responsible yeah. public health decisions, like. It's the case rates are not 
a picture of the virus. They're a picture of the virus that we know about. This is super important. Multiply that number by 10, and that's the true number of cases. So all of you most likely have been around some kid, either briefly or for a longer period of time, who had COVID but had no symptoms and nobody knew. Okay, so some of those kids are going to go through life harmlessly, and they won't communicate it to anybody else. But some of them are going to either get sick themselves or make somebody else sick. So there are more cases than we know about. So it's safest to assume that everybody that you come around has COVID or has the virus, not, co not the illness necessarily, but carries SARS-CoV-2. And if you treat everyone like that, then you will stay safe. Let's just say that a kid gets sick, all right, and there's no mask, there's nothing happening. They go to school, they spend 15 minutes or more in a classroom and several other kids get sick, but also their brother or sister is sick. And suddenly the whole school, like the community and the school have been exposed. So masks have been doing a lot to help us. But the thing is that like your bubble of people that you see and that your child sees, you think your child goes to school and is exposed to just the kids in the class. That's not true because each one of the kids in the class is exposed to the people at their home and the people that their parents think are not cheating. So, you know, you have your, your pod and everybody swears that they're not quarantining, but the fact is that most people are quarantining. And so each of those kids is exposed to a whole bunch of people. So if we weren't being as careful as we are, schools would be a major form of transmission. And just the caution that we are taking is keeping that from happening, but, but schools are as much a form of transmission as any other social um, encounter. I'm gonna use an example today. I mean, you did say to circle back around to that. So I'll use an yeah. example of, uh, we had a door decorating that occurred at our school and then everybody was to sign up for a shift to go and look at other people's doors and then comment on the doors so that everybody gets feedback. You know, it's a snowman over here and a bottle of, you know, whatever over here and a poinsettia plant. So, you know, up we, up we went down, you know, to the, to the different doors. And I'm with a group of, let's see, it was seven children at that point. And I did caution, we're going to be at a distance as we walk down the hall and look at these things. Kids don't naturally, especially little ones, don't naturally want to stay apart from one another. So I spent most of that experience redirecting behavior constantly as we went from door to door and a door itself i mean if you have seven children how do how do seven children socially distance and look at a door and comment on the door so right there it was a setup um, most of the kids in the hall worked together to decorate their doors i didn't do that i didn't put my kids in a situation where they decorated the door i put up hashtag outdoors on my door because i didn't want to have to decorate my door in the first place but as we were there, we had signed up for a slot of time. And during that time, three other classes came down the hall. And the point to signing up for a period of time to be in the hall to look at the other doors was that so nobody else would expose, you know, each pod to the other pod. So that's- So was you're talking about the impracticalities of right. actually uh, following the CDC guidelines. It doesn't happen, I'm sorry. In an elementary school, probably a high school, it just doesn't happen. As much as you might say, oh, we're going to follow. And so that's why they, they have a case and they say, okay, we'll close. They close maybe a classroom and they don't close the other ones. It doesn't make any sense because then at the end of the day today, there was a Christmas party for all the kids or a holiday party for all the kids where they all, all the different kids from all the different classes all gathered in the gym 
where I know there isn't good air exchange. Uh, and they were all in there for an hour and a half. Oh so, gosh. Right. So uh, right that there, makes me cringe. <laughs> exactly. So I'm just, I'm just giving that as an example that, that as much as we sort of want to say that we're all following all these, these guidelines, it, even the three foot distance wasn't happening today. So even three feet. Yeah. Right. And when you talk about, um, you know, the mental health effects of children being in school, wait, there was something in your question. Who was it? The, the gentleman that was speaking before you had another part of the question about mental health of kids. What was that? Um, just, just of kids being in school under the conditions that they're in right now, which I think involves, Mm -hmm. you know, restricted movement and, but I think also, I think especially just like, and I think I'm thinking particularly for older kids who understand that like perhaps what they're being told about the risk isn't true. I, I think that's a anxiety that I've heard kids. Um, they don't believe express. what they're being told. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think they're mm -hmm. wondering whether it's really as safe as they're being they're assured that it yeah. is. They're skeptical as yeah. are all of us in this call. Yeah, well, and you should be because the message got politicized and that, you know, because ultimately the problem is that we, we in the United States, we don't ever want to give a handout to people who don't deserve it. And so the idea of paying people to stay home, it's just so un-American when actually it is the absolute safest thing that we could do is all of us stay home for six weeks. The virus should be you know, not totally eradicated, but close to it. And um, it just makes me sad that that never even comes on the table. I think that Biden is starting to talk about it a little bit, but up until this point, it has never even been put on the table. But if you guys are gonna be going to schools and taking chances and risking your lives for teaching the kids, then we need to, to start opening the conversation. And education is the other area that I study a lot. I've done a lot of, um, coaching for people doing their dissertations in education. And I do know that, that trying to change the way people think about education is like trying to turn the Titanic. It's extremely difficult to redefine education. And yet right now is the most wonderful educational opportunity when kids can find out this is a historical event. What is going on in their world right now? What do you do during a pandemic? How do you pass the time in a home if you've got nothing else to do, you know, learning to cook, learning to, to be conservative with food, learning to, you know, all these great survival skills that could be made into fun like they were. I was brought up on a, in a farming community and all these survival skills were just part of my childhood. I have great memories of that stuff. All that stuff could be, you know, passed on to kids. But the problem is it's not education as we know it. It's education about a particular time in life and about particular skills that are necessary for this time in life. And um, we're, we're kind of fixated on teaching the kinds of skills that I, I'm beginning to wonder if they even are the skills that are needed for kids in the world that they'll grow up into. But you guys know a lot more about that than I do. I just know that research in education is very much inside the box, not outside the box. There's very little innovation happening on the, the graduate level in um, institutions that produce educators. Can I ask one other data question, which the, sure. the, the one other thing that I would say was also really cherry picked or 
even weaponized um, in this board meeting was the the low fatality rate at whatever broad level of analysis. I can't remember exactly the claims, um, which to me was just like, uh, you know, like a, a really disgusting thing to to say, like in a day when 3,000 people died of, um, wow. of this disease. Um, but also, I think, felt like it really overlooked the long-term health effects and like the, the long COVID um, symptoms. The long that, haulers, that, yeah. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm curious if there's any data. I know it's pretty early to, to like see any long-term trends, but. Um, well, they, they are seeing long-term trends. I mean, these long haulers, that's a, that's a huge percentage of people. I forget whether it's 10% of the people who end up hospitalized or 10% of the people who we know have COVID have had COVID, but it's a, it's a significant number. These people who remain ill for a really, really long time. And based on the, the disease models that we have, a COVID can creep into every system of your body. It can go into your brain. It can affect, uh, let, let me not say it goes into your brain. Let's just say that it affects your brain either because of the lack of oxygen or whatever. So to look in, to say that there's a low death rate and this, is, this gets back into the idea that when you're talking about a pandemic, these rates are moving targets. So the low death rate is not actually that low. It's 10 times greater than the common flu or the seasonal flu, at least. And the more people who get sick, the higher the death rate goes. And the reason for that is that you run out of resources. So right now, the hospital in Albany, New York, today, I checked it, it's at 100% capacity in its ICU. What happens to the next person who comes there and needs to be in the ICU? They get turned away. Now, maybe they can go to a nearby hospital, but those hospitals are filling up rapidly as well. So pretty soon they'll have to go further and further. So the death rate will change the more people get sick. So if people are arguing that it's okay to catch COVID because the death rate's so low, don't realize that you can't look at that in a vacuum. The death rate will change um, because we won't be able to care for everybody. But I think a lot of people know that, but not everybody does. Not everybody understands that. The, the most accurate number I see is 1.2% uh, deaths, and um, but that's an average. And so that number is going to be really different in the town that has a meatpacking plant in Idaho, uh, where the hospitals are full and the nearest hospital is 150 miles away that has an ICU bed. The death rate is going to be higher there than it is in Vermont where we haven't filled up our hospitals. There's only four people in the ICU as of today. Yeah, well, do we want to fill up our ICUs? I mean, <laughs> that's why we don't want to get sick. Is not so that we'll all, is, is not because most of us won't die. It's because um, more of us will die if we all get sick. Does that make attack. sense? Yes, like heart attack. Somebody could come in with a heart attack and not be able to get help. Right. 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 The ICU being full, you know, those are also COVID deaths, even though they're not technically because of COVID, they're because the ICU got full. So yeah, it's, um, you can't, that number is, is, is a moving target and it can't be used to justify taking risk. It really can't, not, not logically and not in any kind of scientifically responsible way. Unfortunately, at this meeting, we had the chief medical officer of the local hospital just basically saying we're fine we, yeah, we got now, this um yeah yeah 
Yeah. Right now he's fine. I'm sure he is. And many, many chief medical officers all over the country said the exact same thing two months ago. And those same chief medical officers are overwhelmed now and are not fine. So no, we should not take a single risk that we don't have to take. If we want to get rid of this virus, you know, it's like playing with an alligator with a stick. You know, you go and you poke it and you poke it and you poke it. And yeah, you walk away and everything's fine until finally the alligator just reaches out and goes raw. And you, you know, then you're either dead or very badly injured. We don't want to poke the alligator. They say stay home. Please don't go outside. There's no use dying. Each time someone comes within six feet, we feel like crying. Not long ago, we could touch our friends and our relations. They made it clear we rolled up the way to our frustration. They're in your house, is the answer. Welcome back. That's Indigo Radio that you're listening to on WBEW, Brattleboro's community radio station. Josh, what did you think about, you know, the second part of the interview and some of the things that Amy was saying? I'm sorry, Amy is her sister, (laughs) who you also heard in the interview, but what Sheila was saying. (laughs) Yeah. One of the most important pieces out of that clip was the medical officers, the chief medical officers talking about, oh, it's safe. We've got this right at the hospitals. This discussion really illustrates that um, the data and the numbers can always be morphed and presented in such a way to further an idea or an agenda, whether that's good or bad, you know, that's a moral question. But the, the fact remains, like, if we're using the data that we have to say that this global pandemic is not as bad as it may seem, we're still putting ourselves at risk. COVID is very much a serious threat to us. And that no matter how you spin the numbers, this is something that we are all very much at risk for. I really appreciated too what she said about if everyone's paid to stay at home for six weeks, what a different place we would be at if that happened right in March. 
I just wanted to point listeners to a show that from Indigo Radio about five months ago called Corona Shock and Socialism. If people didn't listen to it, I would highly recommend it. Um, Selena did an interview with um, two people from Tricontinental Research Institute talking about how different countries were handling the virus and how in places that are truly socialist, not what claiming to be communist like China, but truly socialist and the ways that they handled the pandemic just changed the course of the pandemic, like Cuba, for example, or Venezuela or Kerala, India. And Mm -hmm. so I would highly recommend people listening to those interviews as well. The other thing that I was thinking about, Josh, you know, the news just came out that teachers were and ed school workers were in line for the vaccine. And that's changed in Vermont, even though the CDC still recommends it. Vermont has said we're going to be first giving the vaccine to people over age 65 or with health complications. And I understand the, the decision to do that based on who is actually dying from COVID in Vermont. But one of the things that it makes me think about is the political arena of teachers and like what people think about teachers anyways, and how much that this pandemic makes worse the things that are already occurring. So that people already are saying, teachers just complain, teachers just need to do what they, just be quiet and do what what society is expecting of them. And we see that with um, statements from top officials in Vermont that teachers just need to sacrifice this year and not see their families. Teachers need to keep on working, you know, and even within our school districts, decisions are being made top down from people in offices or even from the state offices. Like, you know, Vermont state offices are all working remotely through March Mm -hmm. and they're the ones making decisions to keep schools open. And so it's just really unfortunate that again, teachers are kind of being asked to continue to show up to unsafe working conditions and just go along with it and put a smile on their faces. Josh, let's go to the final part of the conversation with Sheila Braun. This is just a short clip. All we'll right. Be back shortly. You're listening to Indigo Radio. Can you speak to uh, the, the fact that the, the education system, the Department of Education is saying, and, and the pediatricians and things are saying that kids aren't as safe at home? and how you feel about that per se, and whether or not um, it's okay for the schools to just sort of say, okay, well, you know, we're the only place where this can happen, and this is the best place for kids to be, and why you suppose that that narrative has become part of it. Well, it serves the political agenda to say that kids are better off in schools. I raised two children who were not, and I'm sure other people have, have, have raised children who were not better off in schools who were either bullied, picked on, lonely, um, board, which was, you know, the problem for my kids. And, you know, they had great teachers and everything, but they were children who were very self-motivated and they would be able to, they were able to teach themselves a lot of skills, um, because they were autodidactic and kids who were autodidactic. Um, I hope that I'm sure I'm talking to teachers. You guys know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, they might thrive to just being left alone to learn whatever the heck they want to learn. You know, and I understand that, that that's not always a good idea, but, but in some cases it is. So what I think, whenever somebody says, you know, kids are better off in school, I, as a parent, 
I really take on bridge to that. You know, it's like, what? <laughs> You're saying that it's dangerous for children to be around their families, that they're safer away from their families, really? So um, I think that teachers, well, people who say that schools are better for kids than families need to like think again. And, um, and also it tends to be very uh, based on, on income. So what they're doing is they're saying that poor kids are better off in school than they are at home. And that's not fair to say either. That's very classist. And so, you know, I have a, a serious problem that what we need to be focusing on is how to make it good for kids to be home with their families, to take the creative energies of you guys who really are way underutilized by the kind of curricula that you have to stick with by no child left behind to utilize what you have to offer to help these kids make the best of the situation that they're in, learn what they can learn. Let's make home a good learning place, but let's take away the script that you're stuck with and let you write your own scripts, your own ways of making sure that these kids take every opportunity to learn what the world has to offer right now. So there was a comment in the chat that basically it's class-based and it agrees with what you were saying too. Oh yeah, I it's definitely class-based and it's insulting. I mean, there are some kids who are better off in school, yes. Some. But that's not a reason to make every single child go to school. There's got to be a better reason to be in school than that. Come on. And I think also, I, you know, when I think about um, the narratives around why schools should be open right now, I just really wish that um, those people, like people who are worried about the kids' safety and worried about the kids having food, that the conversation could be brought into why is that not happening in the first place? Right. That it's not, again, another burden for schools to like bear. Um, yes. But that it's like, let's have this conversation and let's make sure that everyone has food. But let's also ask the question of why people don't have food in the first place. And it's that not makes so much schools sense. Schools are not open. <laughs> yeah. Solve the food problem. Solve the childcare problem. Teachers are there to help children learn the skills they need to survive in the world that they're growing up in, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean teachers also have to be social workers, babysitters, you know, which is way underutilizing teachers, and definitely not teaching engineers who have to follow a specific script. You know, like I have a company, when I hire people, I hire people I trust, and then I trust them. But if you, you know, if teachers, it feels to me like teachers have not been trusted enough and you guys have these amazing skills. You need to be trusted and allowed to use your skills, use your creativity to, to, to just make this work. Mm -hmm. And that means that the administration has to let go, has to just take their hands off and say, go for it. Let's see what you can do. And I'm sure good things would come out of that. I am 100% sure of that. And it would be safer. So you've been listening to Indigo Radio on WVW, Brattleboro's community radio station. That was Sheila Braun, a data scientist who focuses on medicine and education. And I just really appreciate as, as a school worker, what she said at the end of like, just trust the people doing the work, you know? And that is something that is so far removed as in schools, but also as workers in general, we live in a top-down society where it's like, 
people are, the higher that you're paid, the more knowledge that you have and the more you should be respected. And so administration that's making, I don't know, twice is what I'm making. I'm not sure actually are the ones making decisions, but they're not the ones daily working with the students. And teachers have been saying since this summer, like we now know remote learning so much better. We now know so much better ways to meet our students' needs. We could be doing outdoor education. We could do be, be doing pod learning, but instead we're like trying to follow the same regiment of public education that's been existing for years during a global pandemic. And we're going to look back at this moment and just see how absurd that actually is. And I really appreciate the point that there are all of these services that could support our students, right? Mental health care for them, having adequate food through nutrition and and all of the things that help support a healthy person. Um, A lot of that is expected by, by teachers and school workers, but that's not our focus. As Sheila said, our focus is to educate students for the world around them. There needs to be a real address that we we are not the people to do all that work. I, I push back on the idea that as teachers, while we may be viewed as superheroes by some or heroes by some, that um, we're human and we're able to do what we can and to put all this extra on us doesn't allow us to do the work that we were trying to set out to do as teachers. So mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate you bringing that up, Becca, and then Sheila reinforcing that, yeah. Well, we're at the end of our show, so there's a few announcements that I want to make. First, please check out the School Workers Action Committee. This is a group that formed over, well, we've we've been in the process of forming for a, a year or so, but really got together this summer to try to figure out what can we as school workers do to try to build power Um, both within our union and we have folks who are not part of um, unions that are part of the group. And we're trying to figure out, you know, how can our voices be at the table and how can we um, also be pushing for our communities to have what they need. You can find us on Facebook, School Workers Action Committee. Um, The other thing is that the Spark Teacher Education Institute is going to be starting a five-part film series uh, starting January 29th at 7 p.m. The first film that we're showing actually really connects to what we're talking about here today, The Dirty War on the National Health Service. This is a documentary, a John Pilger documentary, talking about the history of threats to Britain's national health service. And when I say threats, I'm talking about um, the privatization, the push of privatization that's been happening um, in Britain. And we hope that people will join us. Please email sparkteacheredvt at gmail.com. And this will be online through Zoom, correct, Becca? Online through Zoom. So we'll be posting on our Facebook Um, We'll post it to Indigo Radio's Facebook. And to access the show, Corona Shock and Socialism that I mentioned earlier, go to SoundCloud or uh, Apple Podcast, and you can find Indigo Radio. You can subscribe to get all of our shows. Anything else I'm forgetting, Josh? (laughs) Um, I, I hope everybody stays safe through these holiday seasons and wears their mask when they're out and washes their hands. 
Yes. We forgot to mention, I think, that that was Gloria Estefan, the song previously, mm-hmm. Put On Your Mask. And we're going to go out today with Trina Lopez, If I Had a Hammer. He is one of the people that um, has passed due to coronavirus. So we're going to honor him today, a tribute to him today on our way out. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Indigo Radio. Thanks, y'all. Thank you.